character is uh, above all other things. So to start off this morning again, we're going to look at the interpretation of Scripture. And so our guiding question that you have on your sheet there is, what is the infallible, in other words, what is uh, an incapable of error rule or standard of interpretation? How do we know that we're interpreting God's word rightly? That's a very important question, right? What, what standard, what measure do we test our interpretations of scripture with? Um, in our country, we have the Constitution, which was written, uh, you know, over, I don't want to do math right now, over 200 years, I know that. Over 200, under 2,000 years. It was written, but, but we have a rule in our country to interpret that document, don't we? What is the rule that is used in our country? Who, who has the authority to interpret the Constitution? The Supreme Court, right? They have that authority. They're the, the, the measuring rod to, to know whether or not an interpretation of that document is correct or not. And we might have some squabbles with with how they interpret that document, but that's the rule in our land, right? That's the rule to interpret that document. For us, as we're looking at interpretation of scripture, this document that was written a lot longer than 200 years ago, what is our rule to interpret it, to, to test our interpretation of it? Well, the Roman Catholic view you have there, this was uh, written at the Council of Trent, which was uh, part of what has been historically known as the Counter-Reformation, uh, this Council of, of Trent to, to basically say all, all those things that those Reformed guys, those Protestant guys are saying is wrong. Uh, so this is one of their statements here. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, that's a good vocabulary word there, it decrees that no one relying on his own skill, shall, in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, listen to this, presume to interpret that the said sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, who it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold. So according to that statement there in Roman Catholicism, what is the rule, what is the, the measuring uh, stick, as it were, to, to judge an interpretation of Scripture? The church. So we kind of looked at, we're going to draw a similar diagram to when we looked at who, who determines the authority of Scripture earlier. Uh, this is a different sort of thing. Who has the authority to, to interpret Scripture Who's the rule over it? Let's say the, the church, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. So they have the final say over what interpretation of Scripture is correct and what interpretation of Scripture is incorrect. Now, if you think about that, there's quite a bit of power. Right? If, if you have a king who issues decrees, uh, issues proclamations, those sorts of things, 
if there's someone who has the authority to interpret what the king means by what he says, who actually has more authority? The interpreter, right? He said this, but what he means is this, 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 right? And we kind of can maybe see that with the Supreme Court sometimes in our country. That the Constitution says this, but what they really mean is this, this, and this. Right? It almost can be an authority. Uh, it, to have that right of interpretation uh, places that authority above the authority of, of Scripture. It's a very powerful authority. Now, um, in our day and age, this, this is still a, 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 a thing that continues on. The Roman Catholic Church still has in their minds the, the authority to interpret what Scripture says and does not say. Are there, are there any other uh, rules or uh, measuring sticks that we can use, so to speak, to judge the interpretation of Scripture? Not necessarily us, it, ourselves, but out there. What are some other measuring sticks to determine whether or not this interpretation of Scripture is correct or not? Wrong answers only. Yeah, Jim. My feelings. And uh, in, some, in some circles, even within Christianity, you have this idea that the Holy Spirit speaks through impressions. And so they might equate the feelings to the, I'm going to put in quotation marks, the Holy Spirit. Right? And so if something doesn't feel right, if an interpretation doesn't sit well, then that can't be the right interpretation. Right? It's an it's a authority above Scripture because it has the right to interpret Scripture. What else? Society. What do you, what do you mean by that? Society. Okay, so if uh, society as a whole, or, or maybe we, we would say uh, culture, kind of c- connected to that. If society or a culture says one thing and scripture uh, is against that, well, we interpret scripture in light of what our culture says. Yeah, Paul says that, um, that homosexuality is a sin, but in our culture, we know better now. And so, he must not have really known what he was talking about or it was only for his day and age. Or You see that we're interpreting Scripture in light of the culture instead of the other way around. Okay? What else? Okay? Um, can I change that a little bit to celebrity teachers? Yeah. Good, good or bad. Good or bad. That there could be a very gifted and actually um, God-honoring man who actually can become the authority, the, the interpretive authority. He has the final say. That if he says it means this, then it must mean this. 
because he's so gifted, because, or on the other side with false teachers. You know, this is a very charismatic person um, who is very convincing. You know, we, we can, especially in American culture, I think we have this, we're, we're very uh, prone to c- celebrityism. Well, the guy's famous, he's got a big name, he's got a big church, he's very uh, uh, well-known and, and all the rest, so what he says must be right. Must be more right than the pastor of a small church. Because God has obviously blessed him. Okay? That, that can be a real danger. You see that. If celebrity pastors or teachers, even if they don't want to be the authority over Scripture, they can be the interpretive uh, authority. What else? Experience. Yep. Experience is a big one. Either either my own or someone else's. Um, I, I see this a lot with uh, the idea of uh, dating and, uh, and marrying an unbeliever. So-and-so uh, dated an unbeliever and they got married and the guy, usually it's the guy, became a Christian and it all worked out well. Totally ignoring passages that say, do not be unequally yoked. Right? Interpreting that sort of stuff in light of my own experience or the experience of others. Um, you see that with, with a lot of things, actually. What else? Other writing? What do you mean by that? Okay. Maybe uh, other religious writings? Okay, yeah. Yeah, Mormonism is a good example of that, right? That they interpret uh, what those 66 books mean in light of what their other books Jehovah Witnesses yep Jamie what were you going to say yeah tradition is such a sneaky one <laughs> because it's assumed it's, it's always an assumed good because we've always done it and, and you don't even recognize that it's something uh that maybe doesn't have any biblical warrant or uh, that sort of stuff. We see that the Pharisees did that, right? They interpreted the commands of God in light of their own commands. Um, Maybe a few others. Uh, Reason. Those who deny the the historicity of Adam, uh, the flood, uh, those sorts of things. Well, the, the miraculous can't be true because their own reason or experience. They've never seen it. It doesn't make sense to them. Okay? Now, is reason an important tool that God has given us? Yes. Is it needed to be able to understand Scripture? Yes. But it can't be the final authority, interpretive authority over Scripture. It's a tool to use, not an authority over Scripture, not the rule of interpretation. Um, Any other 
thoughts on that? Science. Uh, and I'm going to put in quotations, science. What science says, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl. Yeah, um, and that's kind of what Debbie mentioned. I can put that in here too. Yeah, false teachers. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I might add in here. There's probably more. There's, there's a lot we could put here. Um, just running out of room. Uh, geopolitical events or history. Where we actually interpret what is going on uh, in our, we interpret scripture in light of what is going on in our world instead of interpreting what is going on in our world in light of scripture. Where uh, what has happened or what is happening is actually the, the rule of how we interpret the measuring rod of that. And so there's, there's a lot of things that can be our, um, our rule of interpretation. But as we talked about, the problem with this, and some of these things are, are very legitimate things, the problem with it, though, is if this is our interpretive rule, if this is the standard in which we judge whether or not an interpretation of Scripture is correct or not, it actually has more authority than Scripture. And that, that is problematic. That these things are not adequate to be the ultimate authority. Only God's word is able to be the ultimate authority. And so, again, our question, what is the rule of interpretation? And, and more than that, is there an infallible rule of interpretation? What, what, if there is, what is the infallible rule of interpretation? And that's where we come to paragraph 9 of, of the first chapter of the Confession. They write, The infallible... Again, it means it's not capable of, of error. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, not many, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And so this, is a, this answer is a lot like the answer that we gave when we looked at how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? What's the authority to tell us that the Bible is the Word of God? The Bible, right? What's the infallible rule of interpretation of the Bible? The Bible, right? That Scripture... interprets Scripture... That if I come up, if, if I'm working through a passage and I come up with an interpretation of it, if I, if I say, I think this is what this scripture means, the way to tell whether or not it means that is by looking at the whole of scripture. Does that contradict anything else in other places of scripture? Is that in line with the rest of scripture? If, if there's a passage uh, that is unclear in Scripture, for instance, I, I think of the, the Paul's offhand reference to the baptism of the dead, whatever, however I, whatever I interpret that as meaning, it has to be in line with the rest of Scripture. 
And so the whole Mormon idea, for instance, of uh, that you can baptize for the dead in the sense that you can act, they can actually be saved uh, after death and all that, that's totally contrary to other passages in Scripture. That after death comes judgment. There are no second chances, right? And so... Um, we, we need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. That's the infallible rule. If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is exactly what Jesus does. Matthew chapter 4. We'll, we'll start in verse 1. So this is after uh, Jesus uh, was baptized and you had the Spirit descending on him and the Father spoke. The great Trinitarian passage. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, the, the devil changes his tactic. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus is on, on top of the temple there, and the devil says, throw yourself down. Why? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture. It's not a, a misquote. This is from Psalm uh, uh, chapter 91. He says, do this because scripture says this. And scripture really does say these things. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He interprets Psalm 91 in light of, uh, that's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, yeah, he doesn't argue with the devil. God does say that. The scripture does say that, that, that God will command his angels concerning him, that on their hands they will bear him up, lest he strikes his foot against a stone. But he says you have to interpret that in light of whatever interpretation you have or application you have for that verse has to correlate with you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus is saying I'm not going to jump off the temple which is a, a good plan. Right? He interprets this passage in Psalm 91 in light of Deuteronomy 6. Because Deuteronomy 6 is an infallible rule of interpretation for Psalm 91. Okay. Well, it says, again, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So there it's saying that we should interpret less clear passages in light of clearer passages. Well, how do we determine what makes a passage clearer and what makes a passage less clear? Here are some, um, uh, a little hierarchy for you that, that may be helpful. 
we prioritize, first of all, the didactic or the teaching passages on the topic. Okay, so if there's a passage that is explicitly teaching on a topic, that passage is more clear on the topic than other passages. Does that make sense? For instance, um, a science textbook is more, a chemistry textbook is more clear on the topic of chemistry than my child's journal, his science journal, recording his experiments in chemistry. Does that make sense? Do we agree with that? The teaching topic, uh, teaching passages on a topic are more clear, are the most clear. Secondly, there's also teaching passages that are on a different topic, but maybe brush up against that topic. That the main point is something else, uh, but maybe it brushes up and makes an explicit statement that regards our question. And then thirdly, you have the descriptive or narrative passages, just describing what's happening, okay? And so according to this hierarchy, should we interpret the teaching passages in light of the narrative passages or the narrative passages in light of the teaching passages? Yeah. And, and in one sense, the whole Bible's teaching, right? But we're talking about teaching passages as explicit statements. The Lord, your God, is one. That's an explicit statement about the nature of God, right? As opposed to maybe a description of what God is doing or a narrative of God's interaction with Abraham. We need to interpret the narrative in light of the didactic or the teaching. Other things we want to consider when we're thinking about what's clear and what's less clear. Genre is very important. Are the epistles more clear, would you say, than the apocalyptic Revelation and Daniel? Yes. So should we interpret the epistles in light of what we think the apocalyptic literature says. No. <laughs> we should interpret the apocalyptic revelation in Daniel in light of the clear statements of Paul in the epistles or the clear statements of Peter in the epistles. Okay? Uh, you might also consider, you know, the uh, uh, prophetic are often less clear. There's often figurative language, uh, uh, figurative languages, I'm having trouble speaking, figurative language and symbolism. Uh, parables can equally sometimes be less clear. We need to interpret the less clear in light of the clear passages. Well, what does this look like? What does this look like? Let's do a little bit of a test case to help us think through this. So I, I come to Scripture and I have a question. Okay? So for instance, maybe my question is, what is the nature of the unbeliever? What is the nature of the unbeliever? That's a pretty important question. And what I do is I look through all of Scripture, which we don't have time to do today, and, and I think through all of the passages that maybe shed light on that question. What is the nature of the unbeliever? Okay, so I have sort of a sampling here. Let's start there in Genesis chapter 20. And we're going to try to apply the fact that we should interpret the less clear in light of the clear. Genesis chapter 20. Could someone read verses 1 through 9?
integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. 1 through 7, 1 through 9. 1 through 9. Thank you. So we have a passage here. Uh, let's start by thinking, what kind of passage is this? Would we describe this as a didactic passage, a explicit uh, teaching passage, or a narrative passage? Narrative. Okay. Is there an unbelieving person in this narrative passage? Abimelech, right? He's a pagan. If you were to just look at Genesis chapter 20, how would you describe Abimelech? Right? What else? He's a good guy. He's even more righteous than Abraham, it would seem like. Right? He's trying to do the right thing. Abraham's out there selling out his wife, and Abimelech is, that, is fearful, actually, of doing the wrong thing. He wants to do the right thing. And so, again, don't give an answer yet. We're thinking about what is the nature of the unbeliever? Is there kind of a mix, 50% good, 50% bad? Is it, okay, let's continue reading. Jonah chapter 3. And when someone gets there, if you could read verses 1 through 5. Thank you. Narrative or uh, teaching? Narrative. What do we notice about the people of Nineveh? Repentant. As soon as they heard it, Right? Let's continue reading. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So, so far we've only looked at narrative passages. If we were to just look at the narrative passages and answering this question, we would come to a certain conclusion, wouldn't we? 
I'd actually say quick, quick to be repentant here. Ephesians chapter 2, could someone read verses 1 through 5, please? Thank you, Rick. So, narrative or teaching? Teaching. Okay, my next question is, what is the topic that is being dealt with in this passage? Okay, salvation, and particularly, what is he describing? Condition of man before what? Before Christ, before they were saved. He says, this is who you were, Christian. This is who you once were. So is this a passage that should be relevant to our question that is on the topic? Yeah. I just can just put on topic. Okay. How does it, how does it uh, describe the unbeliever? Dead in what? Dead in sin, trespasses. What else? What else? Yeah. Okay, so the only way that they're made alive is by grace. Yeah, I'm running out of room here. Okay, that's a pretty big list, isn't it? That's a lot of information that teaches us what is the nature of the unbeliever. Okay, so do I interpret this list in light of these things? Or do I interpret these things in light of these things? The latter. Right? This is a clear teaching passage on the topic. This is answering the question that we're asking explicitly. Right? Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And if someone could read Verses 9 through 18.
all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to, de to deceive. The venom of the ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past they ruin and in their past are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Thank you, Cheryl. Teaching or narrative? Is it on the topic? Yeah. And he, is he talking about just some unbelievers? Oh, both Jew and Greek. Right? That, that's all. Okay. We probably don't have enough room for all the things on there, but what are some notable characteristics of an unbeliever? Describe. What is that? Not righteous. That's a shocking one, right? There, there's not actually anyone seeking God in themselves. So, were the Ninevites just in themselves, just, oh, I wish someone would just tell us about God, and no, right? We have to interpret this in light of this. Something happened to the Ninevites to change them. God did a work in them. This is not their nature in and of themselves because no one seeks after God. What else? No fear of God. And we could go on. I, th I think you get the point. And again, with this first passage describing Abimelech's actions and all that, is he actually a righteous man? There's not one righteous. That includes Abimelech. And of course, we know there is one righteous. That's Christ, right? The unique one. So we need to interpret these passages, the narrative passages, in light of the teaching passages. And, and whatever conclusions we come to in these narrative passages have to be in line with the teaching passages. Okay? So did Abimelech do good things in a human sense? Yes. Right? Did Abimelech do those things to the glory of God, out of a love for God? No. So is it actually righteousness? No. Okay? We interpret the narrative in light of the teaching. There's another test case there if, if you want to work through that on your own. Uh, does God change? Is God immutable there? I, it's just interesting. I, I read this book that basically surveys all of the different positions on questions like, is God omniscient? Is God omnipotent? Is God immutable? Does he change? All these things. And time and time again, the people that say the wacky stuff, the people that say things like God doesn't know the future, they're interpreting the teaching passages in light of the narrative passages. Does God change? No. There's clear statements about that, but there are people who say that God does change. 
that somehow he can become a better God? Or, and how do they reach that conclusion? Through the narrative passages where there are times where it seems like God does change. But we have to interpret those narrative passages in light of the clear teaching of God, the, the explicit statements of God. And I, I think part of where we get thrown off is in the fact that God is stooping down and speaking to us. It's infinite God speaking to finite us. And so just like when you speak to a small child, a toddler, do you always, how do you speak to them? Do you speak to them the way that you would normally speak? No, you stoop down and speak in a way that they understand. It might not give you the whole picture of the thing or give them the whole picture because they don't fully understand it, right? God speaks, stoops down and speaks to us and he does so in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can have a real knowledge of God. But part of that is they call uh, anthropomorphisms. I always have a hard time saying that. Or anthropopathisms. So when it says the strong arm of God, does that mean that God actually has an arm? No, he's speaking to us in a way that we can understand. Okay? Uh, just, just as a nugget, and we're not going to go into it. When it says that God regrets something, does that mean that God changed his mind? He doesn't change, right? What, what it's talking about is, is he doesn't like this thing. We can understand that, what regret is like, right? It's a way that we can understand when it says that God regretted making humanity after all the sin, you know, before Noah. It's, it's not a statement on God's, the fact that God changes. It's a statement on the fact that God hates sin. And so we interpret the narrative in light of the clear teaching passages. Just a note there, most bad doctrine, incorrect doctrine, I think stems from not giving interpretive priority to the didactic or the teaching passages on a topic. And so we don't, we don't want to be guilty of that. We want to think through the whole counsel of God and prioritize things appropriately. So again... The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Okay? Secondly, I want you to note that it says uh, that the true and full sense of any Scripture is not manifold, not many, but one. Uh, that little statement there is uh, correcting what's known as the alleg allegorical method of interpretation. Um, here's an example of it from Augustine. Augustine, a very solid theologian, but um, the allegorical method of interpretation was big during his time, and uh, he, he was guilty of it. Uh, listen to this. Sorry for the spelling mistakes in here. A frequently cited and most revealing example of allegorization, of allegorizing, is Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which, in which virtually every item is given theological significance. The man in the parable is Adam. Jerusalem is the heavenly city. Jericho is the moon, which stands for our mortality. The robbers are the devils and his angels who strip the man of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin. The priests and Levites are the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament. The good Samaritan is Christ. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. The oil and the wine, so on, so on, so on, so on. All right? Every detail means something else. Okay? 
This statement that's saying the meaning of Scripture is not manifold but one is saying that there's one meaning to Scripture. I can't come up with my own allegory and you can't come up with your own allegory and they both be true. There's one sense of that Scripture, of that passage. Now, can there be a fuller sense of that passage? Yes. But it has to be in line with um, the, the, original, the, the meaning of it, God's meaning of it. So errors we want to avoid in interpreting Scripture. It says two. I'm going to give you a bonus one. Three. First of all, we want to in, uh, we don't want to interpret Scripture in isolation of the rest of Scripture. We don't want to interpret Scripture in isolation of the rest of Scripture. This is one book. We want to interpret it in light of the whole of the book. Okay, just like if you were to try, if I were to write a letter to you, and maybe I said something that made you think that oh, he doesn't really like me. You need to look at the whole letter. Am I saying, dear, dear beloved Ricky? <laughs> I'm not going to say. <laughs> look at the whole of the letter, right? And so maybe if I say something that seems like it means this, you got to look at the whole of my intent by looking at the whole of the document. That's how we read any other thing, right? We don't just take pieces out of it. We've got to read the whole in its whole context. Secondly, we want to avoid inserting our own meaning into Scripture, which I, I would say the allegory uh, method of interpretation does. We don't want to put our own meaning into Scripture. It actually has a meaning that God has given it. We want to know what that meaning is in its context, uh, in its historical context and in the context of the whole of God's word. And then thirdly, uh, just to reemphasize this, we want to avoid prioritizing the narrative over the didactic. We don't want to interpret the clear statements of God in light of the narrative. One more test case here. Genesis 28. This is what Pastor Brennan did last Sunday. Is this legitimate? He's right here, so. <laughs> um, just, just for the sake of time, Genesis 28 talks about the ladder, Jacob's ladder. You guys remember that? Okay. Brennan, Pastor Brennan said that that refers to Christ. Why did he say that? John 1. Is that a valid interpretation of that passage? Are you feeling? <laughs> how, how, how do you know that that's a valid interpretation of that passage? Comes from Scripture. This is what Scripture says about this. It might be uh, uh, hundreds, thousands of years later. But God says that this is what that means. This is what that points to. Did Abraham necessarily know that that ladder is referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary who would die on the cross? No. Does that, just because the original here, or not Abraham, uh, Jacob, just because Jacob didn't fully understand the, 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 the significance of that ladder, 
Does that now then, are we tied to Jacob's understanding of that ladder? No, we're tied to God's understanding of that ladder. Yeah, Daniel doesn't, sometimes he's like, what, what's going on here? Right? The, the original hearers did not necessarily, aren't, are not uh, infallible rule of interpretation. One, because we don't actually know what the original hearers thought. It's important to think through what it meant to them. But the only infallible rule of interpretation is God's word. And so if God's word says that the latter refers to Christ, then it refers to Christ regardless of what Jacob understood. Okay? Yeah? So for the recording, <laughs> in children's ministry, we should make sure to couple the stories with the teaching passages. What do these stories actually mean according to the whole counsel of God's word? Would you say that's an adequate summary? Yep. But I like saying like, 
<laughs> All right, five minutes. We got this. L last page, guiding question. Uh, the last paragraph of the confession really just sums up the whole thing. How are we to settle matters of dispute? How are we to settle matters of dispute? It's not flip a coin. It's not, <laughs> not flip a coin. So in light of all that we've learned, because the Word of God is necessary, because it's authoritative, because it's sufficient, because it's clear, because it's infallible, because it's inerrant, because it is the very Word of God, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. In other words, what's the final test? What's the final, what gets to have the final say? Scripture. Scripture. God's Word. And so, um, are the decrees of councils, is the, is the, uh, the Nicene Creed, is that an important, important statement? Does it carry some weight to it, some authority to it? Yes. But is it scripture? No. When they were arguing about those things, those men, almost 2,000 years ago, what were they looking to to write their statements? Scripture. And we ought to do likewise. And so, uh, doctrines of men, private spirits, that's our own uh, interpretation of that. Uh, or it could also mean, um, for, for those who think that God still speaks, though this is not advocating that, anything. All must be test, uh, tested with Scripture, delivered by the Spirit. That's where we rest our faith in, is God's Word. And so just a couple ending questions to sum up, uh, to, to think through all this. What is the relationship between that, this confession of faith and God's word? It's under it. It has to be under it. Does that mean it, again, does that mean it carries no weight? No, it carries significant weight. What's the relationship between pastors and God's word? They're under it. Does that mean that pastors have no authority? No, we, why do we have authority? Because God's word gives us authority. But it has to be under God's word. What's the relationship between the church's voice from the past and God's word? Again, under it. Again, it's significant. God has given the church pastors and teachers. We shouldn't ignore pastors and teachers in, in our church or in the past. They're all gifts to the church. And yet at the same time, they have to be under the authority of God's word. And so lastly, what must be our ultimate authority for making decisions in this church and in our lives? God's word. And we know the answer, but are we putting it into practice? Are we testing the things that we think? Are we testing the things that we do in light of Scripture? Do we prioritize what God prioritizes? Do we build our lives in this church upon the foundation of the revealed truths of God? 
Are those the things that we hold most dear? Are those the things that we're not willing to give up? We need to have God's word as our ultimate authority. And that, that's a lifelong process, isn't it? None of us have, have arrived there. We're constantly having to test what we think and test what we do in light of the revealed truth of God's word. And so, Christian, as a last thing, to end on a good note, when you see your sin, when you see your failures, how should you interpret those things in light of the revealed truth of God? It's paid for in Christ. It's finished. You have his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word, this, this precious gift that is all of your grace, that, that you, we, we don't deserve that you should speak a word to us. The distance between us and you is so great, so unfathomable, that you are a holy God and, and we are sinful man. We only deserve one thing from you, and that is the display of your justice. And yet, you have chosen to be so gracious towards us. You have chosen to set your love upon us, not because of anything worthy in us, not because we're humans, but because you are a gracious and loving and merciful God. Father, help us to cherish the gift of your word. Help us to see it as truly the voice of our creator and our savior. Lord, help us to, uh, even as we enter into our time of corporate worship, to, to hang on every word. Lord, to not be um, flippant about it or to be careless with it or to take it for granted. Help us to realize that this gift that you've given us, the gift of your word, was ultimately purchased for us by the blood of your son. Help us to value it at that cost. Lord, help us to hold uh, to the truths that you have revealed uh, to it with, with an iron grip. Lord, no matter what society says or no matter what our feelings say, help us to cherish your word, to love it, and then to proclaim it to those around us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, everyone.